Thank y'all very much. Hey, everybody. Welcome to GBC. Uh, glad that you're all here. Let me make sure I've got that. Yep, I've got it on. Um, let's see. Two things. One, the men's retreat, which Hayden talked about, and I thought he did a great job, but I'm going to reiterate it because a few of you weren't in the room. There is still time to sign up for our men's retreat. Uh, it is one of the best ways to cultivate really meaningful relationships at Grace Bible Church. It's the best way to cultivate uh, the beginning, at least, of, of great disciple-making relationships. And men, I, I will just say this to you. There are plenty of reasons that are good not to go on our men's retreat. Just make sure if you're not coming, it's one of the good reasons, not the bad reasons. Bad reasons, there's more than could be named, um, would be like, I'm tired. Like, I get it. Everyone's tired. You can sleep. You can take a nap. You like, come. It, it is an awesome experience. And ultimately, we can't be a relational, disciple-making church if we don't engage in relationships. You see how that works? Uh, so we'd love for you to, to come. It would be really great. I think that's it. Let me pray, and we will dive into God's Word. Lord, thank you so much for your gospel. And, and the fact, Lord, that, that we just sang a response to your gospel, which is, Lord, we need you. We, we need you every moment of every day. And Father, you are our righteousness, and you are our hope, and you are our salvation. And Father, for those who don't know that, I pray that somehow by your Spirit's uh, quickening of their souls, they will get that tonight. Um, I pray that your word would speak to them. For those of us who know it but are prone to forget it, Lord, that, that we really are desperately in need of you and, and that you are wholly our righteousness. God, remind us in the sweetest sort of way about how much security we have in Jesus and, and the freedom and the, the courage that that instills, that we might go out and glorify you. I pray that you would do all of that tonight through 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And Lord, we just ask that you would quicken our minds because it is so much in such a short amount of time. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I found over the last 30-ish years or so that, that people's reactions to different songs in worship is, are really interesting. And like a case in point would be a song that we sang last weekend. Uh, it's, it's Christ the True and Better. And, and it's, I don't know if y'all remember that, but it's, it's Christ the True and Better Adam, Christ the True and Better Isaac, Christ the true and better Moses, and then Christ the true and better David. And, and the song, in like three and a half, four minutes, lays out like all these pictures from the Old Testament of all those guys and how they, even though they are real characters in real history, they are also pictures of Jesus who would ultimately fulfill much of what their lives were about. And so it's, it's like this wonderful theology and like I love this song. And a lot of other people love that song, but there's other people who will come up to me and be like, it's just too much. Like it's, it's like three and a half minutes and you're, you're trying to give us so much content and we don't have time to kind of sit in the, the truths and we wish it was more repetitive and we, you know, like all of this kind of stuff. And so you're like, people love it. People hate it. I tell you, if, if you, um, if you don't like that song, Christ the True and Better, if, if, that, if, if it's too much and you feel like it's a little too dense, I guess there's two points of bad news. One, we're going to keep singing that song. It's really, really good, and like, maybe you'll get used to it. or so. I, like, I hope you do. Um, the second thing, though, is if, if you don't like that, you're not going to like this sermon because <laughs> this, this sermon, this passage, it's not the sermon that's dense. It's the passage. 
Like this, we're covering six verses and it is dense. It's like every expression in these six verses is just like pregnant with meaning. And, and so like by the time you're trying to wrestling with one, you're going on to the next one and it's going to be hard. And so I, I invite you to pray that God would, would give you a quickening and a refreshment if, if you're tired after a long weekend, that God would revive you and, and make your, your mind work quickly and, and your soul sensitive, but you're going to need help. It's, it's a lot. So let's, without further ado, jump in. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're just going to start off with verses 1 and 2, and I, I'll be honest with you just to let you know about this. I almost just preached on these two verses. Like it is, and I could have, and I could have gone long. It's unbelievable. Therefore, Having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Now, there's a lot going on there, and I'm going to start with something pretty basic. Why is Paul an apostle? Why don't you think about that? I love the Apostle Paul. I, I think he's great. I think he's brilliant. I, I think he is committed. I think he was willing to suffer first and foremost for the glory of God, but he was also willing to suffer for you. He was willing to sur- suffer for the body of Christ that they might be edified. And, and he went to all sorts of lengths, both to, to honor God and to serve the church that God was forming. And so, so I'm a huge Paul fan and so if you ask, why is Paul an apostle? My, my tendency is to go, because he's awesome. But that's not what the text says. The reason Paul is an apostle is the mercy of God. And, and actually, once you, you hear that, because it says it right in verse 1, once you hear that, you're like, oh yeah. As, as awesome as Paul is, let's remember his story, right? Paul understands the mercy of God because Paul was a Pharisee. And Paul was a Pharisee who made a name for himself by by persecuting Christians in the early church. So much so that Acts chapter 6 and 7 talks about the stoning of Stephen. That's when people take rocks and throw, throw them at Stephen until he dies. Paul is endorsing that. Paul is holding the cloaks of the people who are throwing the stones. Like, Paul's a bad guy. And so when When Paul says, therefore, having this ministry, and this ministry, by the way, is a ministry of the new covenant. It's not a ministry of the law like Moses had. That's all of last chapter, and that was about a month ago, so I'm catching you up a little bit. It's it's not just an explanation of the law. This ministry is a new covenant ministry where the Holy Spirit comes into people, changes them from the inside out, makes them new creations in Christ, set apart for God's work. And Paul's like, I can't believe I have this ministry. I have this ministry only because of the mercy of God. Now, look, you've heard me over the last year, year and a half, as we've gone through 1 Corinthians and and now we're into 2 Corinthians, you've heard me marvel at the idea that Paul continues to love the Corinthians. He he has this tenacity in loving the Corinthians, and I've, I've several times been like, I can't believe he sticks with them. Paul is an apostle. Paul is brilliant. Paul's all those things that I said. And the Corinthians are just wearing him out. I mean, all the time, they're criticizing them. They, w- they wish he spoke more like these other guys who seem to be more eloquent. And like, 
It's just a bad deal. And, and I've said, I'm on record, if y'all treated me the way the Corinthians treated Paul, I'm going to go find another church. Okay? So like, right, you know, I'm not Paul. I, I mean, you <laughs> missed a great opportunity to say amen. Um, it's just, you know, like I'm not even close. But I, I'm not as tenacious in loving people. And, and so I've marveled at Paul. Like he is, he is so tenacious. And the question is, how is Paul so tenacious in loving people who aren't that lovable? And that's actually explained in verse 1 as well. Therefore, having this ministry, this new covenant ministry where people's lives are transformed by the mercy of God, which I've experienced, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. We are where we are by the mercy of God, so we don't lose heart. So we don't lose heart. So do we don't become discouraged. So we don't give up on people who are harder to love. So we move toward, not away, from the people who nobody would blame us if we moved away from. The, the reality is, if, if you're quick to dismiss people, if you're, if you're quick to kind of write them off, if, if you're quick to cancel them, and, and maybe you're, you're a good Christian, and so you, you know how to do this without really drawing attention. You'll, you'll be like, okay, I'm never going to say anything bad about them. But they're on the shun list. You know, like, like you're not going to say anything bad, but you're also going to make sure you're never at a dinner table with that person. And it happens all the time. Christians get really good at that kind of stuff. If, if that's you, if, if you're quick to put someone in time out, forever. I want you to think back on your story. I, I really do, because there was probably a time where you were stuck in your sin and, and you thought God shouldn't love you. And, and maybe that time, by the way, is tonight. And, and you wonder, you're like, why, why does God keep moving toward me? And, and the answer is because he's God. He, he's gracious. It's not because you're that winsome. You're not. I know you. I know a lot of you. Those of you I know, I can speak with great confidence. You're not that winsome. I'm just teasing. I, I really, we've got a great group of people around here, but, <laughs> but compared to God, come on, right? And so God moved toward you. He didn't give up on you. And really, that's, that's what he's calling us to do. We've received grace. We extend grace. That's, that's how it works. The mercy of God extended to you is therefore the key to perseverance in loving messy or dare I even say messed up people. See, that's, that's the key. The mercy of God to us enables us to persevere in loving messy and messed up people. Now, the mercy of God is the key to that, but, but it's also the key to something else that we're going to see in verse 2. And, and this is actually where it gets kind of thick. It gets dense. And so we're going to go really slow, and we're just going to go like term by term. And at the end of this, we're going to see what the mercy of God is also the key to in verse 2. I'm going to read it all for you in its entirety, and then we'll, we'll go back and go slow. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. 
Let's go verse or phrase by phrase. Disgraceful, underhanded ways. Now, it's interesting. Disgraceful ways is the noun. Underhanded is an adjective describing the noun. And so it's, it's really two Greek words. We're going to look at underhanded first. It's the adjective. Underhanded is the Greek term kruptos. Kruptos. And, and it's where we get the word crypt. Now, if, if you think about what a crypt is, you'll understand a little bit more about kruptos. And, and, and crypt is, is, or kruptos is secret. It's something that is concealed. A crypt is a tomb that, that is hidden, and, and it, the body is concealed. And, and that's what we're talking about in, in the adjective, underhanded. It's something secret, something concealed. Now, disgraceful ways, similar to cryptos, a little different. It is clandestine conduct that should create shame. That's, that's a really bad thing. I'm not going to give you the, the Greek word because it's not going to mean much to you. But clandestine conduct that should cause shame. I, I want to give you a, an example here. I, I've, I've heard of a pastor who spent a long time in his pastorate, and the whole time that he was preaching God's Word, he was also having dalliances with, with other women in and outside of his church. You think that's okay? Probably not, right? I mean, let, let, let's do it this way. Instead of you judging them and me asking you to judge them, if, if, would you be comfortable in that situation? Would you be comfortable being a pastor and, and having dalliances, like relationships outside of your marriage with, with other people? I, I would hope you would say, no, let, let's back it up just one step from that. How about if, if you were just leading a weekly Bible study and, and you, were, you were having affairs with, with other people? Would, would, would that be okay? It's not a pastor, but, but you're, you're doing ministry. And, and is that okay? Just keep that in mind for, for where you are on this scale. And let's now, instead of going to like you're leading a Bible study on a weekly basis and having an affair, let, let's just say, I don't know, you're, you're not married and you're leading a Bible study and, and it's not an affair, but, but you're having sex with someone who's you're not married to that okay? Because all of a sudden here, we're getting to something that's a little bit more culturally acceptable, even amongst Christians. It's wrong. No doubt that it's wrong. Biblically, you don't have a leg to stand on, but so many other people are doing it. Are you okay with that? That's the question I'm asking. Okay, let's, let's take sex out of it. Let, let's just say you're leading that Bible study on a weekly basis, and, and you're, you're proclaiming God's Word. Let's call it on a Tuesday morning or something like that, but every weekend you're getting high. You okay with that? Like, hi. A lot of people are doing that, too. Let's back it one step further, okay? Long illustration. Just follow me. You're there. I'm going someplace. Weekly Bible study, Tuesday morning. You're not getting high. You're getting hammered. And look, all your friends are going out and getting hammered. And we call that the grace of God, right? You okay with that? Is there any conviction there? What I'm really doing here, I'm just going through some scenarios because... I'm trying to figure out what level of hypocrisy you're willing to live with. And the reality is, hypocrisy is hypocrisy. If, if you're the pastor who's having dalliances, that's hypocrisy. But, but if you're in any way comfortable with things that, that God has said we shouldn't be comfortable with, and, and you've decided, well, everyone's doing it, I can be comfortable with that, that's still hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is hypocrisy is hypocrisy. 
I started with an extreme example, and everyone was like, oh, that's terrible. What's not terrible? What level of hypocrisy are you willing to tolerate? The reality is, y'all, and this, this is actually great news. I'm not, I'm not trying to bust your chops here. In the new covenant, where we don't just have the law that we are destined to fall short of, but we have the Holy Spirit who changes us, who transforms us, we don't have to settle into hypocrisy. Like, I am not saying you have to be perfect to lead a Bible study, and I'm certainly not saying you have to be perfect to preach, because I couldn't walk up three steps if that was the case. I couldn't do it. But I think in the new covenant, because we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, it is reasonable, in fact, it is expected that the Holy Spirit would bring conviction. So when I sin, I feel conviction over my sin and I repent and I ask God who is gracious and kind not only to forgive me but to transform me so that I won't ever do that again. And I might still fall in it but I'm going to fight my sin. I'm going to try to crucify my sin because the glory of God is at stake. And that's true if I'm leading a Tuesday morning Bible study or if I'm preaching at Grace Bible Church or if I'm two weeks into Christianity and I'm not leading anyone yet. I'm just living as a new creation in Christ. That is true for all of us. What level of hypocrisy are you willing to tolerate? You don't have to. We live in the new covenant. Next clause, verse 2 says, We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Now, when it says we refuse to practice cunning, literally it's we won't walk in a Greek word, panorgia. Panorgia. Panorgia is, is two Greek words smushed together. That happens a lot. Pan is pos, and it means all. And ergia is ergos, where we get the word ergonomic, and it means work. So we won't walk in all work. What does that mean? That, that's confusing, right? I, I didn't get this at all. Like, does that mean that we're not going to be industrious? Paul was clearly industrious. Paul went all over the world on foot. Like, he worked harder than you work. So that's not what he's criticizing. What does panorgia mean? It's this idea that the ends justify any or all means. It's, it's a word that was used like we've got this great goal. Maybe it's church growth. And so we're going to do any or all things to accomplish church growth. The ends might not glorify God, but we think, I'm sorry, the means don't glorify God, but as long as it gets us to the end, we're going to be pragmatic and we're going to be willing to compromise. The text goes on to say that is tampering with God's word. I know the text in your English translation says we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but it's almost like we refuse we refuse to practice cunning more so, like, like this is what it is to tamper with God's word. How, do, how does the church do that? Let me, let me tell you how the church is tempted to do that. Sometimes the, the church, because they're trying to prop up a gospel that is meager, we start trying to cultivate moods. 
You, you've seen that? Like we, we put films on the lighting and, and so you, you change the lighting and you play in minor chords and, and you, you try to whip people into some sort of frenzy because the gospel isn't enough. You got to have a pep rally. And then sometimes you'll, you'll take a text that's maybe a little bit hard and, and, and you know, like I know that y'all aren't going to like what this text has to say. And so instead of teaching this, I teach something right over here on the periphery of this. I don't preach the main passage, which is hard. I preach something and I'm like, ah, don't look over here. Come look over at this. This is going to be a lot more interesting. I'm going to tell you stories that are going to make you cry and you're not going to realize I didn't really teach the word of God as the author wrote it. Or maybe the whole text is just really hard, and you're like, you know what? I'm not going to teach it. I'm going to skip it. I'm going to go over it. I'm going to gloss it. I'm going to cover something that is going to appeal to my friends in the audience so that they will like me, and you have tampered at that point with the Word of God, and Paul refuses to do that. In fact, the next clause says that instead of monkeying around with God's word, Paul's strategy is to demonstrate, Paul's strategy is demonstration of God's word. Paul's strategy, to demonstrate God's word. Why do I say that? Well, the next clause in verse 2, we refuse to tamper with God's word, but in contrast to everything that I've just talked about, which is not good, but... By the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. The open statement of God's truth. I, I totally got this wrong when I was reading it earlier this week. I thought that was going to be the right proclamation of the gospel, like the open statement of God's truth. Like I was going to articulate the whole gospel, not just the easy parts of the gospel. I was, I was you know, we're going to preach the whole council of scripture type deal. We're going to be very clear. Everyone needs to believe in Jesus. And that, that's true. It's just not true here. The open statement of the truth isn't about verbalization. I looked this word up. It's not about verbalization. It's about demonstration. It's about manifestation. So the, the point is, the open statement of the truth is really about how we live in a way that glorifies God. It's not what we're proclaiming. I'm not saying proclaiming isn't important. I'm just saying this isn't talking about the proclamation. It's called, talking about the demonstration, the manifestation of God's purposes. That's how first and foremost we glorify God. So that leads us to the second thing that mercy is the key to. The mercy of God gives us the new covenant which transforms us, which is the key that enables congruence between how we live and what we proclaim. That, that's what the text saying. I get that it was complicated, but I promise you, that is what Paul is talking about. The mercy of God gives us the new covenant which transforms us from the inside out, and that is the key. The mercy of God which gives us the hope of transformation by the indwelling Holy Spirit gives the key to congruence between how we live and what we proclaim. If that seems complicated to you, let me just give it to you this way. The mercy of God lays siege on hypocrisy. It just roots it out because of the new covenant that is ushered in by the mercy of God. It lays siege on hypocrisy. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. We're going to go much quicker now. This sermon would last like a year. Verses 3 and 4. 
And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, those who are perishing, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There's a lot going on here. It's very dense. The gospel is veiled to those who are perishing because the God of this world, and that, my friends, is Satan. It's it's not Yahweh. The God of this world is Satan. Because Satan has blinded the minds of those who don't believe so that they can't see the light of the good news of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It's a lot. Let's start with what is simple and what is positive. Jesus is both the light of the gospel, according to verse 3 and 4, and the image of God. He is the light of the gospel, and he is the image of God. Every once in a while, you'll run into someone who will say, you know, I'm really into God, I'm very spiritual, but I'm I'm not down with Jesus. You ever ever hear that? I can understand why they say that, because if you're really into God, God can be made to be abstract. I I think it's a misdefinition of God, but it happens all the time. God can be abstract, and, and abstract gods don't really have any bearing on how you live your life. And and so everyone's into an abstract God. Jesus is manifest. Jesus said some real specific things that, and sometimes kind of offensive, certainly inconvenient. And so there's a lot of people out there who will say, oh, I'm, I'm really into God, but I'm not that into Jesus. These verses say that we can't do that. It's off the table. It just will not work. You can't love God without loving Jesus because Jesus is the image of God. He, he is the exact representation of the Father's will. So if you struggle with Jesus, you struggle with God. If you struggle with God, you struggle with Jesus. Just how it works. Same, same. That's the first thing. Here's the other thing that you ought to know from verses 3 and 4. If you really believe Jesus brings salvation and transformation, new covenant, which we've been talking about since chapter 3, if you really believe that Jesus brings all this stuff, him being veiled should break your heart. Is your heart broken? For the people that you love who don't yet know Jesus. They, they might work in the next cubicle. They, they might be on the other side of the world in Africa or, or, or way south of us in Argentina. I mean, wherever it is, is your heart broken for the people whose eyes are veiled from the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ? Why are their hearts veiled? Verse 4, in their case, the God of this world, we've already said that's Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So it's, it's, it's Satan. Now there's other passages, to be clear, in Scripture. It says our sinful nature prevents us from chasing after God. But, but here the blame is cast on, on Satan. It's partly us, it's partly Satan. I, I don't know exactly how that works, but there's blame for everyone. Well, verse 4, four says though, and look at it again if you don't believe me, Satan exerts such influence that he keeps unbelievers from understanding the glory of the gospel. That's what verse 4 clearly says. He, he exerts such influence that he keeps unbelievers from understanding the glory of the gospel. Now, I want you to look at verse 4 again. I want to look in your Bibles and, and just read it. 
I know, and this will maybe seem like a rabbit trail, I don't think it's a rabbit trail at all, I know some of you struggle with Reformed theology. I'm Reformed in my understanding of salvation, and that means I believe in things like predestination and election, all these other things that the Bible actually talks about quite a bit. And some of you, you wrestle with that. Now, I understand why you wrestle with that. I had to wrestle with it for a long time before I came to those conclusions. And I, I want to press you a little bit, and I want to do it in love, and, and I also want you to know that if you, if you don't buy into what I'm saying about Reformed theology tonight, we can still be good friends. I don't, I don't mind at all. We'll keep talking about it. It's no problem. But let me ask you a question from this passage. How do blind people, and I could say, say more specifically, how do people blinded by Satan, because that's what we're talking about in verse 4, how do blind people see light? How do you answer that question? Because that's an important question to ask. You, you can get into all sorts of theology and wax philosophic. How do blind people, how do people who are blinded by Satan see the light? It's a question you have to answer. I've got an answer for that. I, I think Paul's answer is implicit in the text. They don't. Blind people don't see light. Now, if you come from some backgrounds, that, that's going to bug you, and I get that it's going to bug you, and you're going to say something like, well, don't they have free will? And, and let me just say, you're using a term that is not used in Scripture ever once, not once, free will, not in the Bible. I know that you've heard it. It's not there. So I'm going to concede, though, that a blind person has free will. A blind person, for instance, has the freedom to read Braille, and that's pretty amazing if you think about it. Or, or they can choose not to read Braille. That, but, but they're free to do it. They, they, they can do it, they can not do it. A blind person, and I lived in a ski resort for a number of years, a blind person can snow ski. I think that's so inspirational that, that these guys are flying down a mountain and they can't see where the trees are. Like that, that to me is super Super impressive. So they have free will. They, they can choose to ski. They can choose to not ski. A blind person, in reality, has, has a ton of freedom. They, they can do many things that sighted people can do. And, and I think it's all really inspirational. But if you ask me, Wes, can a blind person see? I'll say no. Every time. Every time. Because if a blind person could see, if a blind person could perceive light and color and all of that, they wouldn't be called blind. That's how it works. It's just, I mean, I'm not pressing for much here. If we can say that blind people can't see, let's throw all the theology apart. Let's just leave it there. Can everyone agree that blind people are called blind because they can't see? If we can agree on that, we can move on to verses 5 and 6 because I think verses 3 and 4 are really setting up verses 5 and 6. But if you've agreed with me on that, follow the logic on verses 5 and 6. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. It's probably not becoming clear yet. Let's move on to verse 6 and hopefully we'll gain on it. For God who said, talking about blindness here, for God who said, 
let light shine out of the darkness, that's in quotes, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's another passage that's just dense with words, and so I'm going to start with a real simple question. What's the problem with blindness? What's the problem with blindness? The answer is it causes people to live in darkness. I think it's hard to argue that. Like, that's the problem with blindness. It causes people to live in darkness. Verse 6 again. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What are we talking about here? We're talking about a reference to creation. In fact, this is almost a direct quote. When it, when it says, let light shine out of darkness, that is almost a direct quote from Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. You can't go back much further than Genesis 1, 3. Like, this is talking about the very beginning of creation. And ultimately, Paul is referencing the fact that God started creating new things new things, all new things, by first creating light. Isn't that, isn't that what he's doing there? You following me? Why is he doing that? He, he's not just changing the subject. Let's talk about creation now. That, that's not what's going on. What is Paul doing here? Paul uses the imagery of creation to describe your salvation. That's exactly what he's doing here. He's the, the God who created light out of the darkness, that God... Let light shine out of the darkness into our hearts. You see what he did? He, he's in the business of creating light out of darkness. Your heart was blind to the things of God until God showed up. That's what he's saying. Why would he do that? The rest of verse 6 is actually going to give us the answer. God pierces our dark hearts with the light of the gospel unto, and this is now quoting as best as I can, unto the illumination of the glory of God in the countenance of Jesus. And that still seems cluttered or confusing. And so my job is to make this as simple as possible. Here it is. God puts light in us so that people out there can see God's glory in Jesus. God puts light in us so that people out there can, can look at us and they can see the glory of God in Jesus, not in us, in Jesus. I, I, I thought about at that point using an illustration of a lantern and like we are the light of Christ. And, and I don't want though like bugs for people to be attracted to me because that's not going to help them. There had to be a better illustration. God puts light in us so that people can see God's glory in Jesus. We're not a, a lantern. We're like a tiki torch. You've never heard this illustration before. <laughs> You're a tiki torch. You know, tiki torches, they're not spectacular. No offense, but that, they're just not. You know, there's kind of a bamboo pole and you stick them in the side of a path and you know, nobody's like attracted to the tiki torch. You kind of, it just gives light to the path and the path gets people to Jesus. That's what we are. 
So we, we, we throw off enough light that people can get down the path to Jesus. So if you can buy that, if you can buy that you are a tiki torch, I think verse 5 will now make sense. Look at it again. See if this works. For what we proclaimed is not ourselves. This isn't about us. But Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. We're not the, the, the magnificent lantern on the side of your fancy house. We're a tiki torch that, that gets people down a path so that they can know Jesus. That's what we are. We're, we're servants. We're tiki torches. We light the path. Two weeks ago, I preached on Palm Sunday. And remember, we, we, we talked about, see if anyone knows, what are we? Donkeys. Thank you so much. Somebody on our staff, whatever. <laughs> We're the donkey, right? But our job is to carry Jesus to his glory. That, we're the donkey. We, we were tied to a post. The Lord of it, which is us, needed us so that Jesus could ride into Jerusalem, into his hosannas, into his glory. That's a really fun Palm Sunday sermon. Today, we're tiki torches. I think we're moving in the right direction. Today, we light the path upon which people get to see Jesus. How are you doing with that? I'm serious. Like, are you living a life that illuminates the path for people that they can know Jesus? Let me say two things about that. How are you doing with that? Here, here are two things about that. That is not optional. If you have been saved, if you are covered by the blood of Christ, you have been saved for that reason. To give light that comes from your heart by God's grace so that the world might know the way to Jesus. That's not optional. God made you a new creation in Christ. You're set apart for his works, for good works, so that you might glorify him and so that the world might know the way to Jesus. That's not optional. That's the purpose of your salvation. How are you doing with that? Second thing I'd like to say about that, that is where the Christian life gets fun. I'm not kidding, y'all. Like, if you're bored with Christianity... If, if you think it's just a bunch of rules of what you're not supposed to do and you're kind of tired of it and you're like thinking about throwing it off, you don't get it. You, do, you just don't get it because that's not what... Christianity isn't just a list of don'ts. Christianity is an invitation to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ and to represent him and to show the light of Christ because your heart has been illumined that you might then have the privilege of going out into that world and representing the ways of God and the grace of God given to you by the Son of God in his death and resurrection. And you have the opportunity to say, there is a God and he exists. And this joy that I have, this holiness that I have, comes from nowhere else. That is when life gets fun. I, I don't want any lesser form of cultural Christianity to rob you of that joy. Because that, that is why Jesus mounted a cross. He did not mount a cross so that you might have mercy, that you might 
continue in your sin. That was not his purpose. It never was his purpose. Why would you ever think that the Son of God would die to excuse you into further sin? That is not grace. That's gross. The mercy of God enables the Spirit of God to come into us that we might be transformed, that we might be ambassadors, co-laborers, all these prestigious titles that God has given us because we have been adopted as his sons and daughters and and you want to just continue to sin you've misunderstood the grace of God and I'm not trying to beat you up I'm trying to give you something much greater far greater than you could possibly imagine in your slavery to sin I'm giving you the opportunity to make a difference. To be a tiki torch for Jesus. And you'll never have more fun than if you embrace that truth. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us, Lord, not to settle for lesser things. Help us, God, to live in the freedom of your gospel, knowing that that your righteousness put upon us as our only hope. But Father, you have done that and you've put your Holy Spirit inside of us and then you have commissioned us to to do great things for your kingdom, to represent your son, to represent you. Father, what a privilege, God, that we might take the mantle of representation, that we might embrace your grace and its transformational nature that we might live unto your glory. Please, God, please, God, that we might give you all credit for anything good in us is Christ in us, is the Holy Spirit in us. You have illumined our darkened hearts that we might light a path, that others might know you. Please, please, Father, I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you all so much for coming to worship at GBC tonight. I really appreciate you being here. Uh, I'm going to be right up here afterwards. We covered like half of the stuff in these six verses tonight, and, and it was, I still ran out of time. So if you have questions, it just means you're using your cabeza. So um, I'd love to chat with you. I really would. Um, again, thanks for coming. If we could now, let's bow our heads for the benediction to Him who is a king who reigns from on high to him who sent Jesus to live an impeccable life and to die a sinner's death so that sinners like us could be adopted as sons and daughters. But further than that, they might be indwelled by the Holy Spirit and live under the empowerment of a new covenant that they might participate in the kingdom's work unto the glory of God. To Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be all glory, honor, power and praise, both now and forevermore. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a fantastic week.